0: Just a quick note before jumping into today's podcast: the Flip Learning Network is a nonprofit, and we are always looking for support from our community. There are many options to support us. Please ask us on social media or check out our page at fliplearning.org/supportfln. We have a Patreon set up. We can accept donations via PayPal. We have an Amazon affiliate link and some other options through sponsorship links on the website. So this is another episode of Ask the Flip Learning Network the podcast where we talk to the flipped education community. I have today uh, the distinct pleasure to have Sean Michael Morris joining us. Uh, I remember trying to invite Sean like over a year ago and he said yes. And then I never got back to him because I just kind of pod faded for about six months. Um, Now we're back on a regular schedule. I reached out to Sean. He was a, very quick to say yes, so I'm very gracious to Sean. Um, you're now at the University of Mary Washington, right? You're, um, let's see, Director of Digital Learning. Mm-hmm. Is that the title you have now?
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, okay. So I'm the Director of Digital Learning there and um, and the Director of Digital Pedagogy Lab, um, all in the Division of Teaching and Learning Technologies.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. And that's how I've, I've found out a lot about Sean's work through I'm not sure where the avenue was that we ran into each other. There's, there's. you're also an advisory buddy for the virtually connecting community recently. And I've been involved with that for, I think, three years now. So we've crossed paths on a bunch of different events. And then I finally got a chance to meet you in person at OpenEd in Richmond, Virginia.
1: Oh, that's right. right. I think it
0: surprised you by thinking, uh, oh, I know Sean and I gave you a hug. But uh, I was listening to (laughs) a podcast by someone the other day where I can't remember the technical term, where you really think you know people that you listen to often. Actually, it was Hidden Brain. They were talking about this. This is an upcoming episode they want to talk about. And I said, yeah, I get that because I, I feel I know I know you, Sean, from from what I've heard and uh, talked to you uh, on things, or people that I listen to their podcast very often. And I've listened to a thousand-something episodes of a coverbill podcast or, or other podcasts, and, I, and you feel you know the person, and then you kind of surprise them in the hallway. So...
1: <laughs> I'll apologize again for that. But um, well, and on, on the flip side, it actually always surprises me that people people have been paying any attention to what I'm doing at all. Um, the the first time that happened was actually in in uh, Dallas at a, at a conference um, when people identified me by my Twitter handle. Right. Um, they kept calling me Slam Teacher, and and <laughs> and I was like, "How do you even know who I am? Like this is bizarre." Um, yeah, but that that does happen, especially at um, at Digital Pedagogy Lab. People will people will come up and give me a hug and be like, I'm so grateful, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I don't think I know who you are. <laughs> I'm so Tell sorry. Tell me who you are. <laughs> Tell me who you are. I've seen your name in an email probably. <laughs> right.
0: No, it's just sorry for those awkward moments. So why, where does Slam Teacher come from? Because I, I don't know.
1: Ah, yes, that's a good story. Um, so Slam Teacher actually, before there was Digital Pedagogy Lab and before there was Hybrid Pedagogy, um, I, was, uh, I was working in a fully online, um, English program in the uh, in Colorado, um, it was a, there was an organization called the Community Colleges of Colorado Online, which which provided um, and I guess they still do provided online courses for all thirteen community colleges in the system. Mm-hmm. Um, so they generated the uh, generated and taught some of the some of the courses that then all thirteen community colleges are supposed to use. Wasn't the best pedagogical model, um, but um, while I was there, I started blogging about digital learning and online learning um, from a critical pedagogy perspective, and I hadn't called it critical digital pedagogy or anything like that, but but um, and and I called my blog Slam Teaching, um, okay. because I wanted it to be sort of I wanted to convey this idea that teaching should be spontaneous and rhythmic and fun the way that slam poetry is. Right. Um, and so the idea from, for Slam Teaching came there. And then when I um, joined or sort of rejoined Twitter um, back in 2012, um, I wanted, I needed a, a good handle. So I used, I used that Slam Teacher, that's, that's where that comes from that's and story. Uh, <laughs> the Slam Teaching, the Slam Teaching blog doesn't exist anymore, but um, maybe one day it will, it'll resurrect.
0: Digital dust. Yes, somewhere there are there. You on the can find archive. it somewhere.
1: I'm sure you can find it somewhere. Yeah, yeah.
0: wonderful. No, that's a good story. I like that. I, I I was extremely inventive with Ken underscore Bauer, but that's a whole different story anyway. Um, <laughs> and the other Ken Bauer that keeps getting confused for me. Right. We have, a, we have a prepared meme for that. So, why don't you um help our listeners get a handle? And I know this could be a whole book. But what is crit- critical digital ped-
1: pedagogy? So um, the term um, w- was first coined actually by my colleague Jesse Stommel. Um, and uh, but, it, but it, it was used to, describe a kind of teaching that he and I have done for years. Um, Because we come from a background in critical pedagogy where we studied Paulo Freire and Bell Hooks and um, folks like Henry Giroux, more contemporary folks, um, and and tried to figure out how to apply that in a world where all teaching, all learning is digitally inflected um, to some extent. So even if you're in an on-ground classroom and phones are off and laptops are down, um, you're still in a digitally inflected environment because you have you're dealing with students whose some portion of their lives is being lived out in the digital. Mm-hmm. So when they leave the room, or even when they're sitting in the room, there's some part of them that's occupying digital space. So what what do we do when that's the case in our in our classroom culture, and when that's the case in our university culture, um, with with the sort of um, aspirations and um, and fundamentals of critical pedagogy. Um, critical pedagogy is, um, I guess, sort of to, to be kind of pat about it, um, is really focused on student agency um, and students taking ownership of their own learning. So it's it's in direct opposition to kind of the banking model of education, where, where, edu- where learning is just sort of, or information is just downloaded into students um, mm-hmm. from the teacher. And then students regurgitate that information to show that they've learned um critical pedagogy is much more interested in knowledge production um, on the part of students so they figure out what knowledge is necessary how they think of things how they perceive things um, and then um, and, and within a digital environment that actually is is super fascinating because the internet allows for almost everybody to be a digital um producer um, of of their own knowledge and, and their own information um, so those sorts of questions immediately started coming up for us when we started teaching um, in digital digitally inflected environments. and um, that's kind of where the this term started to come up from. Um, practically speaking, um, you end up looking at um, ways that online courses are developed. What kinds of questions are we asking of students who are participating in online courses? What kinds of demands are we making of students who are participating online courses. What happens to teaching in an online space? Um, I, I work, for a while I was an instructional designer. Um, previous to UMW, I was at Middlebury College as an instructional designer there, and really was working with this idea of a critical instructional design. Again, this sort of idea of critical pedagogy and how does it apply to an instructional design task? Um, what do we do when we face the LMS, which is designed for a banking model education? Um, and how do we how do we move that around, change that around, so that students become producers of knowledge? On top of that, then in critical digital pedagogy, you also have this layer of, of critical pedagogy being very concerned with social justice um, and concerned with with creating learners who are um, who are active, engaged citizens um, in and 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 are actively engaged in sort of their own um historical moment um, and being objects of history rather than subjects of history so there's there there's this other sort of social justice component of it and when we start talking about that we get into issues of privacy security, access who's who owns what data um, all of those sorts of questions start coming up so then when you start facing the LMS, for example, you start facing an online course, you think about, okay, well, what's happening with student data once this course closes, what's happening with student data while it's alive um, and do students, are students aware of this and what do they, how can they, how can they react to it? How can they have a part in, in that? Because their education now is not just what's happening in a classroom. Their education now is also what's happening in um In Silicon Valley, when they're designing the new, Mm -hmm. you know, the new digital tool that's going to be used by every teacher everywhere, Um, so it it expands out because critical pedagogy essentially is is, um, focused on the development of skills um, around sort of reading your world, and reading your world means critical analysis of everything that you're sort of encountering, so that with a goal of being able to intervene in things that don't feel right or the things that need to be changed. Um, So how do we equip students? Again, in an LMS situation, how do you equip a student to intervene in their own historical moment? Like the two seem completely in different worlds, Um, but so part of what we try to do is bridge the gap in that conversation. How do we bring design of, a, of an online course into conversation with student agency, into conversation with students being able to intervene as historical subjects, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, um, yeah, so that's the. That was excellent. That was the, that, that was, I'm like, sitting here like the beginning of, class. Of, of all of it. And, and it and it and it, um, you know, it, it goes from the nitty gritty to the very, very theoretical um, and uh, at digital pedagogy lab which is which is based in ideas of critical digital pedagogy we do all the all levels of exploration we're dealing with theory we're dealing with questions we're also dealing with like the practical issues of what do you do when you go home and you have to teach classes and now you have this other information um so that's it's, it's a challenge though to go from the theory to the to the practice um especially when we're dealing with digital tools that have none of this in mind that haven't been thinking about about student agency or rights or any of that kind of thing, they're just trying to market their product,
0: right? And 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 us as educators, sometimes having the choice of which tools to use and sometimes not, and either yeah. working with them, working around them, working without them, mm-hmm. um, or or hacking them as much as we can. So no, that's yeah. that's excellent, and, and and I think it does align a lot with what the four pillars of, of Flip is is being being the F, the flexible environment, the learning culture, the intentional content, and the professional educator. Um, I think that there's a lot of alignment there. It's a matter of where do we see... I think a lot of times we misinterpret views on how to do education and we, and we treat FLIP or any other kind of pedagogical model or tool as the solution to the way I'm going to change my class and I know when I've given um, courses or workshops or even just talks I I tell educators you can't do it the way that Ken's doing it or the way that Sean's doing it or we all have different classrooms we all have different students and we need to put a critical focus on on the student agency so I think I think there is a lot of alignment there Um, I'm I'm always resisting labels because I don't want to have those labels on me Um, but I think in the end I just want to do a job of trying to help educators do a better job educating Um, and that's why I do a lot of this other stuff because I'm just a professor I'm supposed to just teach my four classes every semester (laughs) I don't know how I got roped into all these different activities and podcasting and virtually connecting but I think it's because I think that those of us that have experience and doing it right, uh, putting my air quotes on that, and doing it definitely wrong, um, we should be sharing those experiences with other educators to to, to help them be better.
1: I agree with that. And I think think also, along with your idea of, of putting a label on anything. Um, one of the things, I'm, I'm very resistant to the idea of, of labels in the same way. And when flipped learning became, like, when, when, when it was first described to me, I was like, oh, yes, that makes perfect sense. Why wouldn't you do things like that? Mm-hmm. Um, and, then, um, and then it became like flipped learning trademark. And right. it became like the thing. And as soon as something becomes, and I've been asked this about the idea of critical instructional design, too, as soon as it becomes a sort of like ABCs of right. um, flipped learning, then something's gone wrong. Because education should always be subject to our, our inspection and our and our critical and our imagination, and we should always be reinventing what we're doing in it in, in teaching and learning. Um, and so, as soon as someone says, "Well, this works," and so I'm just going to do this this way, and they didn't necessarily come to that themselves; they were handed that by you yeah. know in a brochure or in a workshop yeah. at a conference. Um, then they're they're no longer really engaged in their own teaching and learning. Right. Um, and, um, and so the same thing with critical pedagogy. Critical pedagogy, there is no ABCs to critical pedagogy. There's no ABCs to critical instructional design. Um, and one of the things that I love about, about the digital environments, because I actually am not a big fan of digital anything, um, but, but one thing I love about digital environments is it asks us to ask more questions. Mm-hmm. Um, it demands that we ask new questions. And these new questions are things we can apply to traditional education as well. Um, I remember when the MOOC thing was like this back in 2012, when the year of the MOOC and the MOOC was this massive. I was thing, looking and at the MOOC was... page today, actually. <laughs> yeah, everyone was crazy about the MOOC, um, and um, and they were like, "It's going to change education," and I was like, "It won't change education, but what will what what will what we can do here is it's forcing us to ask new questions right. about about digital education, online learning, but also traditional education in on ground classroom." Um, and one of, the, one of the big things I think that came out of the MOOCs was the idea of, um, let's see, how do I, say, I don't want to say access, but access was a big, was a big piece of it. It's more about um, the, I think one of the big pieces for me was, was the, the, the recognition of the way that Western education thinks of itself. Mm. um that it is the way to educate but the thing that happened with moocs is that people from all over the world were now suddenly participating in a western style education and and recognizing well this isn't how i learn this isn't the way that like i don't feel included here mm-hmm. um because this is a different learning process for me um and so i think it cracked open something about global education and about global communication between educators um that that wouldn't have happened if we didn't have MOOCs. So there was something really wonderful about that moment. The MOOC itself was a red herring, but but the what we could learn from that moment. And I feel the same thing about about anything related to digital education. Um, we we have um, we now can you know now there are softwares for for checking pl- plagiarism like Turnitin, for example. Well, Turnitin is something that I mean I've Written about it, and yeah, Jesse and I've written mic. about it, and um, but it um, it's again, turn it in itself is the red herring. The conversation needs to be about okay. Well, we are obviously really freaked out by plagiarism, mm-hmm. and we're willing to let digital tools take over for us in our teaching. And so there's two conversations to have there. Why are we freaked out about right. plagiarism, and why are we so willing to let a digital tool do our work for us? Um, and and then you get into questions of labor, you get into questions of access, you get into questions scale of yeah, like all kinds of questions start to have, come up. And those are really great questions to be having um conversations around. So um I like I like all of that. Um but I but I but I and and you know people come to digital pedagogy lab and they um they take a they take a course and maybe they don't study anything digital during the entire week and they're like well I thought this was a digital pedagogy lab well it is <laughs> and you probably had your phone and you probably used your laptop and so it was you know in in that it was digital alone but also you know it's really about the pedagogy it's about what right. you're going to be doing when you go home and if you teach in an on-ground classroom you can still learn stuff from you know from the questions we ask because the digital is there
0: right and there's the conversation around it though those of us that are lurking um, around. Uh, I, I remember the ditch pad um, in Toronto, and mm-hmm. Dave Cormier didn't use any technology because he stole some markers from his daughter and uh, some tape and some other, other, <laughs> regular teaching material. And and his what was it? The Wall of Sadness that he created. The Wall
1: of Sadness. But, he created. <laughs> there was a digital
0: component there because there's so many of us that are interested in what's going on there, even though we can't be there. Right. That that digital part comes in and. Yeah. And that's that's my way of connecting because I can't easily make it up there.
1: Um, yeah, yeah, So that's and that's actually that's actually another interesting point. And and I would I would ask sort of I would want to ask kind of how this influences the idea of flipped learning, um, which I know has a lot more um, nuance to it than I'm aware of. But um, digital pedagogy lab when we when Jesse and I founded it we made the we made a very clear des- decision to keep it as an on ground. Um, event. And mm-hmm. this, the reason was because the kind of community that you can form in that intense week-long environment together um, is the kind of learning experience we wanted people to have. Now, we recognize that there are problems of access. Right. People from other countries can't come, people who can't afford to come. Um, we do everything we can to keep the prices reasonable or allow to come. We offer fellows. Um, so we uh, do everything we can to make sure that people can come. Um, and then when we, when and then we also often do um events in other locations so the people who can't come to the states might come to the one that we did in toronto might come to the one um that we're we're planning this is again this is <laughs> hello uh, surprise. this is supposed to be this is supposed to be off the record but now it's being no. recorded um we are planning one in the uk in 2020 um so in the spring of 2020 we'll we'll have one in the in the midlands in the uk Wonderful. Um, and so that way people who can't come from from Europe can come maybe to the UK um, and it'll even be closer to to, you know, um, Middle East and North Africa and, and in those areas as well. Um, I would love to do another one. Um, we did one in Cairo several years ago. I would love to do another one in that area. Um, and, you know, it's just it's. It's just a matter of anyone inviting us, everybody who's listening, um, so. <laughs> <all> the <laughs> um, there's even There's even talk, uh, we've actually opened a conversation about possibly doing one in Australia in 2021. So um, we try to bring the event to people if they can't come to the event, but it's really important for us to have that on-ground experience because there's something very unique about that that cannot be duplicated online. Um, and virtu- exactly. we always make sure that virtually connecting is there. We, 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 invite, we invite people in um, to do virtually connecting. We wanna make sure that they're there because that's a really valuable way for people to participate. Um, we keep the hashtag open. Lots of teachers will do like open Google docs that people can participate in who aren't, aren't at the event. Um, and I think this year we're doing one where people will, there will be a, um, it'll be a hybrid workshop. So there will be actually a workshop that people can participate in from long distance. Um, so we, we, you know, we do what we can, um, but but we don't want to sacrifice that that intimate experience that can happen right. in on ground environment.
0: No. I so idea. I would
1: be interested, actually, from a flipped learning perspective, what how that feels, um, because I know that flipped learning, at least it originally started as, and I, like I said, I think there's more nuance to it now, um, as the sort of like you do all your reading at home and then you come to class and we talk and we have like interactive activity and interactive time.
0: Um, and that's definitely the core. Um, but there's so many, there's so many offshoots to that. And I think a lot of people like I, I did a podcast episode recently with Troy Cockerman, who ran the original flipped learning network podcast. And, and a lot of these people that had kind of been through that community when it was really small and it was the first conferences were like 20, 30 people, and then it got bigger and then now we don't have them. But they said, oh yeah, I've kind of moved past flip and into these other areas. So um, I think there's also the, there's that stigma that it's all about the video. And, and <clears throat> Robert Calvert, who who wrote a book about uh, flip, ed, flip learning in, in higher education says, and he has his memes ready all the time that it's not always about the video. Mm-hmm. And it's not always about the pre-content. Um, there's people that talk about in-class flip that there's no outside work being done specifically trying to eliminate the amount of homework load being put on our students, and especially in, in elementary, but even, even in my domain of, of higher education, where ostensibly we expect our students to work 48 hours a week. As a as a full-time student in our university system here, and I've had that conversation with my colleagues, and I said, I don't think the students really see that they're going to be doing 48 hours a week. Yeah. So yeah. trying to scale that back, um, and I struggle with it too, Sean, is even though I want to have my classroom to be active and I want to have the discussion about the material related to the content that we have in the course and and what we're trying to get through, it does mean that we want to do some work outside. Mm -hmm. And, and, And I don't want to be too prescriptive about what happens outside being a lot more flexible, but, um, I think it's always a struggle and I'm, I'm in a course right now with Howard Reingold and we're struggling with this uh, as, as our group that some people drop off about a third of the people disappear and some of us are really active and some of us aren't or, or we'll just drop off the planet for a week or two and and I love having that experience because then I kind of feel like my students do that sometimes we expect <laughs> that they're they're directly connected to our course right every day all week and and how how do we go, how do we find the right balance as educators to having the students guide the conversations in our classroom, which is just what I see as the flip is flipping the responsibility of the learning process to the students. That's that's my way I, I explain it. Mm-hmm. How do we do that the right way? And I know Jesse just talked about this recently a lot about the right amount of scaffolding or the right type of scaffolding around this learning process that you don't just go totally freeform slam poetry and (laughs) and and don't give them a topic to discuss each day where where do we find that balance that's that's what i'm struggling with and i'm I'm going to be teaching online for the first time in october and i'm scared scared as heck and i had a good conversation with chris gilliard yesterday about this um, because uh, he said he still doesn't know how to do it right after so many years of teaching online.
1: Yeah. So where's yeah. the balance? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, and of course, in, a, in an on-ground environment, the balance can be slightly different um, than it can be online. Um, in an on-ground environment, you're in the room with students and, and no matter how much learning you turn over to students, um, they are always going to see you as the authority in the room. Mm-hmm. They're always going to see you as the anchor. Um, and I, And I talk a lot about um, that I talk a lot about, about a course as a narrative that basically, I don't like to think of a, of, of learning objectives and scaffolding and all mm-hmm. that. But to me, a course is a narrative, but I'm, I'm also a creative writer at heart. So we have a beginning and we have an end, and the teacher is sort of the main author. And then everything is co-authored from there on, but you know where you're going. Um, you know kind of what the, the end of the story is probably going to end up like because you've done this learning process before and right. probably you've taught this course before. And you haven't taught this group of students before, so in that way you haven't taught this course before. But so, but you have a goal, you have a place where you're going to be going. And how you get there is largely collaborative. Mm-hmm. Um, but you are, you are always, um, to me, to me, whatever journey you're on, the teacher has to be, the te- students have to know that someone's steering the ship. Right. Um, That someone can take over in an emergency, that someone, you're not going to let people, you know, become castaways on an island. You're not going to, like, the teacher has a responsibility to keeping students okay. safe. And, and by that, I, I don't mean safe in terms of like, you know, trigger warnings and all that and safe content and blah, blah, blah. But in terms of like, they're not going to sacrifice learning um, by, by taking control of their own education. You are, you are more experienced than your, right. than your students. That's all there is to it. You know the material better than your students. That's all there is to it. Um, so you have to guide to a mm-hmm. certain extent. Now, I'm also not talking about the sage on the stage versus the guide on, guide on the side model either. I'm talking about someone who is the, who is the, the anchor point for that right. class.
0: We're in um, the same boat,
1: yeah, and and but and and you know how to steer better than anyone else in the room, and that's that's your skill. That's what you really bring is your ability to steer the course, um, <laughs> steer the course. It, r- nice. it reminds um, me. Of,
0: there's one of the essays in *Urgency of Teachers* where you talk
1: about the boat, and it's your job to make sure they don't drown. Yeah, yeah. That's and that's this idea is um, if if you put a bunch of you know five-year-olds in a canoe and ask them to take you to the, the island that you see over there you're probably putting them at risk and so it, it's and while our you know college students are are more capable of guiding a canoe most likely um they're not teachers and and they're there's and they need to be respected as learners they need to be given the space to learn um and so that's the job of the teacher for me is making sure that you don't go astray too far, that you end up where you're supposed to go, that everyone is kept safe um, and learning isn't sacrificed. Um, so that's, that, that's part of what I see. In, a, in an online environment, developing that level of communication, that level of trust, that kind of bond is really hard. Um, and, and it takes so much more attention. Um, and it also takes a huge amount of trust because you can't see your students. Right. You don't know if they're showing up every day, um and and I mean there are ways to tell but you shouldn't use them right. and go <laughs> <laughs> down that path.
0: They don't have cameras um, in all their rooms.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, but um, but but I think that I think that establishing that. I mean, I always I always talk to people about and um and there's a a disc- about this too, but but um, I was talking to people about being the, being even more themselves in an online environment than they are in a classroom, being very conscious about the way that you write in an online course. So whether you're writing a response to discussion, you're writing a lecture, or you're writing your introduction, um, your text is their teacher, um, and so. Trying to think about well, how do I get my personality across here? I need to get my personality. And what's what's funny is about academics is that as soon as we sit down to our keyboards, our voices change, mm-hmm. and we become very formal, and 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 we don't sound like ourselves the right. way we would speak. So trying to learn how to write the way you speak. Um, giving students anecdotes about your life as part of your lecture, things like that, that that you, you might automatically do in a classroom, right? You might automatically do it in a classroom, but you might not think to put that in the writing. Um, that helps establish that trust and it helps students see you as a human being that they can reach out to. Um, but then from what I can tell from my my years of, of teaching online, um, you know, you don't you don't get to show up to class for seventy five minutes twice a week. Um, that's just not the life of an online teacher. It's it, it takes so much more attention and so much more time um, to be really to really reach out to the students and make sure that they know that they're in a good in a good learning environment. Um, and I I don't have a solution for that. I get teachers all the time asking me, well, I don't want to spend that much time. I can't spend that much time with. I don't know what to tell you. Wow. Um, it just takes time. It just takes time,
0: and it does. And and that reminds me of a few things there, Sean. Is I never thought of it in that mode. But there's there's some there's a slide deck that I gave actually when I was in Australia about um, it, the talk was mostly about who's responsible for your own professional development and whether it's you or whether it's your your administration and its part. And I remember putting a sign up there of a twenty four hour teacher and mm. talking about the fact that. I'm available through so many different channels at so many different times, but I need to find the right balance while well, with my family life, as well as yep. my students realizing Ken answered me within 10 seconds um, and not may, having that expectation that I'm always gonna be there. That you're always
1: gonna be there that I'm way. Always gonna be there in
0: 10 <laughs> seconds at three o'clock in the morning when, when we have off uh, schedules. Yeah. So I, I love that and I try to explain that. And a lot of my colleagues have a hard time getting their heads around this being available all the time through other other channels. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that you reminded me of well is um, I remember people talk about how long are the videos if they're going to do videos for flip learning and they talk about how they're going to be much shorter because you, you can condense that content, which it's driving me nuts right now if you saw my face on this audio. Um, you can condense the content of your video into a short five-minute segment or 10-minute segment because you don't have all that other banter that happens in the class. Oh! But then we've removed all that banter that oh. happens inside the classroom, which is actually the part that shows our personality yeah. and, and gives us a connection with our students. So um, seeing that as a pro is actually probably not a good thing.
1: No, I agree. And I think that um, and I again, i I've, I've I've taught online. I don't know that I've really ever taught flipped. I wouldn't necessarily call it flipped. Um, but um, so one of the things I talk about is, and I'll, and I'll and I'll use an anecdote here um, appropriately enough. Um, one of the things that I talk about is the idea of teaching um, through a screen instead of teaching to a screen, right. um, because I think we get distracted by the by the interface. Um, and so, for example, right now, um, I don't know what the temperature is like where you're sitting. Um, I don't know what other sounds might be going on around you. I don't actually know where you are. I see a white wall behind you. with some Yeah, stripes. I have the
0: most boring place. Actually. And,
1: that's, and that's pretty much it. And, and, and it occurs to me, I don't actually know where you are.
0: I get more like, context from you. And I talked to Chris about this as well. But I can, I can get some personality about you based on what's behind you.
1: This is and all I, intentional, and I'm this in a, is, a
0: phone booth space because of the volume level.
1: Right. So this is and 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 what I have here. I work from home, so I'm I'm lucky this way. But I, but all of the things you see behind me, and for people behind who yeah. can't see this, I've got a bookcase behind me with a plant on it, with some pictures behind me of a variety of different kinds of pictures and, and that sort of thing. Um, and the reason I do that is because I'm on I'm on screen with people a lot, right. um, and I want to be able to make that sort of connection. Um, and um, I, I was recently working with a teacher who, who was trying to do the same sort of idea of connecting with people um, for her first online class. And one of the things that she did was, she's an on-campus teacher, and so one of the things she did was she had someone film her standing outside the building where her office is and saying, this is who I am, this is where I work, this is my office, and in a second, we'll take, I'll take you into my office. And then she literally had another video and it was in her office and she was showing people around at the pictures and the books and that sort of thing. And this is where I'll be when I'm recording the lectures and that kind of thing. And it makes a huge difference because all of yeah. a sudden she's a person in a place
0: that's doing awesome.
1: a thing. And and she just did it instinctually. It was just a thing she thought of. Um, and, it, and it worked when I saw it, I was like, this is amazing. I feel such a sense of connection and place with you. And that's really, that's really important. Now, interestingly, vit- virtually connecting, which you're part of, um, introduced to me a lot of these sort of elements of what how remote communication and remote collaboration can work Um, because there's some very very specific ways that they ensure that people are taken care of in the online space that conversations are facilitated Um, now you don't have a team of people teaching with you and it's and it's all you're all by yourself in the lms like that but but some of those same lessons are are valuable um, when you're dealing with students thinking about. Thinking about for students, for example, students can't be available 24 hours, mm-hmm. just as you can't be available 24 hours. Um, students have have I was talking to a teacher recently who said, um, should I have a timed should I should I have a time, a time limit on an exam? And mm-hmm. I said, my first response is we shouldn't have an exam. And then the next one was um, yeah. <laughs> don't time it because right. you don't know what their circumstances are. Mm-hmm. Um, they could be like they could be sitting here at their screen like I am right now, um, and then someone knock on the door, right. or you know their their kid fall down, or like care. any kind of thing can happen in that moment. And the reason they're online is because they can't be in class. Right. So don't expect them to behave like they're in class. Um, so thinking about those things, thinking about the ways that student lives in online and digital environments are completely different from you're a captive audience now for my 75 minutes of class um, and you can't leave except to go to the bathroom and you can't have your phone and blah, blah, blah. Like they have their phone on, they have the rest of the internet up. I have like sure. five five different windows while I'm here talking to you. I'm not paying attention to any of them, but they're up.
0: But they there in case I needed, And I've got, you know, your book in the background in case I wanted references. I, I have my Kindle. Exactly.
1: Exactly. <laughs> this is my,
0: my prop for.
1: Yeah. This, and I the, think that the, the, there's such, a, such an important piece of this is just recognizing that that students are physically in the world somewhere and they're not in your classroom and they're not sitting next to each other.
0: And um, I like how you turned around that we are as well. And, and we are as well and i thought about that and I, I talked to to sean about that um or sorry chris about that and sean right now that i think the background is really important so i really want to work on that I'm trying to negotiate with my boss where i'm going to be physically located to give my my online sessions with my students because i yeah I, I i love that i remember when i i gave a first i gave a flip workshop to actually my my son's school primary school and talked about flip learning and talked about um, how to how to change their classroom and their pedagogy and they, they did something that i didn't expect at all um, the first day of, of this of the school year they sent out youtube links um, oh. to all the parents and i i never thought about that and i thought whoa wow that's cool so i've opened up the youtube link and it's them in their house talking here i am here's my pet dog and my bird and i'm thinking that's I guess that's what they do in elementary school because I'm not an elementary school teacher and and they have that different environment where they had they spend the whole year that you're their teacher for that whole year right um, as we're going into classrooms and out of classrooms and and the students as well so I don't have that experience but wow that's so powerful Mm -hmm. that they're inviting not just the student into their home but the power of sharing out a video to the family is they're inviting that family into their home and their spouse and their children mm-hmm. and, and and their their pets. So uh, mm-hmm. I, I was touched by that because I had never thought about that. And then I hope to bring that a little bit more to my practice as well after I saw how yeah. they did
1: this. I think it's really important. I was working with a, a group of teachers in Denver at one point um, and they were talking about an on-ground class that they were gonna be offering online. But in the on-ground class, they would um, they would use, like it was kind of a meditation kind of reflective class. And so they would use like a candle and some music um, to set the tone. And they said, so I, how do we make that happen online? And I said, well, um, before I could answer, they said, oh, I know what we could do. We could have like a, a GIF of a flickering candle on the page, right? And we could have music that, that they could start playing if they wanted to start playing it or whatever. And I said, or you could tell them to buy a candle. Mm-hmm. And then anytime they come into your class space, they uh-huh. light the candle in order to be there. Because they are, they are somewhere in the world where they can have a candle. And they, they don't just exist on your screen. Like, that's not how you don't need the video of the fireplace. You're right, having... <laughs> exactly. You, you might have a fireplace, exactly. Um, and so recognizing that that ways of of incorporating students' space into their learning, um, online learning doesn't have to happen just in the LMS. You can give an assignment that means that they have to leave. Right. Um, they have to go out into the world and do something um, so that they're engaged with their world and that the computer is just the place where the learning gets sort of negotiated, but mm-hmm. that um, where learning is happening is in their actual physical space and in, right, the way that it does in school. Right. Um, yeah, and and all of these things are really easy once you sort of cross a threshold about thinking about them. It's like, oh, right, my students are there at a desk. And I think it's really important, that, this is the first time I've said it actually is in this podcast, that they are not sitting next to each other. Right. Um, because we picture them that way. Right. And in our in, in the LMS, they're all sitting next to each other. And they well. might not
0: even know each other in person. And I had that discussion no. with Chris. It wasn't yesterday, it was the day before. But he also said how we have that luxury in the classroom. He was talking about being in a computer lab and you're talking to a student. You're kneeling yeah. down beside them so you can get, have a conversation with them. But you know what's going on behind you. And there's a conversation yeah. over here. And now I'm going to go that way as supposed to that way. And, and having... Like you said, um, building that trust and making those connections, which is so important to us as educators and 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 to our students as learners, that yeah, it's got to be hard. I'm I'm, I'm yeah. pre- totally preparing myself for failure. Um, but
1: um, <laughs> that's, yeah, probably, totally. that's probably probably wise. Um, you probably won't fail. But but it's you know it's good to go in thinking this is this is an iterative process. Right. I will I will learn a lot this term. And then I will learn it a lot the next term, and then I'll learn a lot the next term. Um, every time we teach online, we learn a little bit more about how to do it. Um, and like Chris Gilliard said, like he still doesn't think he's doing it right. He's probably doing it really, really right. Awesome job, I know he is. But but there's a there's a there's a concern with with good pedagogy that kind of never ends. That you're kind and of always rethinking and looking at things again.
0: And it's always, and, and we're going to run tight on time. I don't want to use too much of your time, Sean. But, sure. Um, it's, when we do these things differently, our students are experiencing this different classroom environment from what maybe their traditional environment is with their other teachers. And that's always a struggle. And I think maybe Chris says it's a failure or I'll expect a failure because, there'll be one or two students of those 30 students that it, this way of doing things just didn't work for them because they want their traditional environment. Mm-hmm. And I think I think often, I have my teaching evaluations published but I haven't opened them yet because I didn't want to open them yet. Um, but I know what's <laughs> gonna be, and I drive to the comments and I'm gonna look for finding how many negative comments there are first. And that's just my reaction that I, I wanna win with all of them. Yeah. And, and, and I don't know if I'll ever get there. I, I doubt I will. Um, but I think we have to be conscious that doing learning online for us um, as teachers the first time or the second time or the 500th time is hard, yeah. but it's probably much, much more difficult for our students on the other end of the camera.
1: Yeah, it is. And if and if we're not concerned, if if as teachers we're not concerned about getting it right, we're just concerned with getting it done, um, then we're really not serving those students um, because they really it is a it is a real struggle um, to to teach to to learn online to be all alone in your room no campus no classroom no students it's really hard um, and and I don't think that most people think of it that way and so trying keeping trying always keeping in mind and and with students who feel like they can't they can't learn online finding ways they can, yeah. making, you know, changing things around, finding ways they can really communicating with them a lot. That'll make a huge difference. So um, yeah, I just, I, uh, it's just, it, I don't know. It, it's, it's good. It's, <laughs> it's good to think that you'll fail and that's a really weird thing to say. But... <laughs> <laughs> I, I,
0: I've, I've followed you enough and, and talked with you enough that I, I take that the right way, Sean, because it's, <laughs> it's, we learn by failing. Yes, um, that's right. It's, it's the only way we're going to learn. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This has been wonderful. And, and, and your definition, actually, if, if anyone grabs the book, uh, Urgency, um, it starts off with a definition of critical digital pedagogy. So I, I kind of cheated there. But I, I know there might be some listeners here that are wondering, who's this Sean Michael Morris guy? And, and what's he doing? Um, and where's the connection to us? Um, I, I abuse my power of the podcaster and I'm going to invite anyone onto the podcast that will have me because um, I and I love that you and both Chris talked about um, online learning. I'm going to have to now um, reach out to some other colleagues as well, because uh, selfishly, I need to get better at this before I even try. <laughs> and, and I can record my thoughts about it and then look back at it in about five or 10 years. There you go. Where can people find more about yourself, Sean, and about the upcoming uh digital pedagogy lab
1: um, so both are both are online um, uh, i'm at seanmichaelmorris.com and uh, digital pedagogy lab is digitalpedagogylab.com um and so you can find information about all of our events there um, i keep a blog um, at the at, at my own website um, and then of course um, urgencyofteachers.com is where you can find um, uh, An Urgency of Teachers, which was written by myself and Jesse Stommel. Um, and and it it is it's available for purchase, um, but it's also available free online, um, so you can you can read it online. Right.
0: If they go to that link, there's the print version, there's the Kindle version, there's the open version, which is uh, hosted through Pressbooks. Um, you can choose all of the above. i purchased purchase the Kindle version, but I actually go to the Pressbooks version often because it makes it really easy for myself to make notes okay. and uh, copy out quotes from there as well. Excellent. Well, thank you so much and um, have an excellent rest of the week. And thank I you. hope to see you again in person sometime soon. That'd
1: be great. Thanks so much. Awesome. Thanks again.
0: The Flip Learning Network is the original online hub of the Flip Learning community. We are a not for profit organization whose mission includes providing access to a wealth of tools, resources, and professional development opportunities. We hope to help educators build on the possibilities inherent in Flipped Learning, and to explore evolving student-centered instructional practices. We invite educators everywhere to explore the resources available at fliplearning.org and to contribute to the discussion through comments, questions, and by submitting your own post. Indeed, the site is built on the contributions from Flipped educators like yourself who write blog posts. We also encourage you to join us on Slack where we have an ongoing dialogue. More information on the site about that. You can help support the FLN by making your purchases through our Amazon.com affiliate link at fliplearning.org Amazon, or you can support us directly on a monthly basis as a patron at Patreon. The short link for that is fliplearning.org Patreon. Thank you.